You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, my name's Casey and I'm one of your pastors. And we are uh, two weeks away uh, from gathering together, uh, the first time back together for an outside worship service. And so August 2nd, we are gathering together outside just to do a worship celebration with uh, the reading of Scripture, praying together, worshiping together, and then being under preaching. And as we're getting ready for that, you know, the reason why we did outdoor worship service is really for this. We want to open up the door for as many people who are comfortable to come back and to celebrate as a family together. We have two weeks, there's lots of preparations to happen, and we want you to be praying for us. Like, pray for us. And and these are some things that you can pray. Pray Psalms 122, that we would be glad to come and worship together. Pray Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, that we would be humble, gentle, patient, eager, eager to promote unity. And then finally, you could pray Hebrews 13, that God would equip us with every good to accomplish His purposes. Be praying for us. Be excited. And now we just need to get started. And so let's get started, and it's so the devil. And so we see that right here in verse 11. It says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of El Diablo, the devil. Now, we, when, when we do this, like we look at this, this wants us to talk about the devil so that we can understand our world more rightly. The scriptures are trying to pull back a little bit of the mask, trying to show us that there is a cosmic battle all around us. And I actually don't think we consider the devil or spiritual forces of evil enough. Now, now don't get me wrong. Like, don't get me wrong, like, there is a way to be too spiritual and to blame Satan and and demons for everything, and in such a way, never take careful consideration of how my beliefs or my flesh or my biases are pulling me away from the Spirit of God, are pulling me out of His will. There is a way to blame Satan for too much and to give him way too much credit and to ignore all the things in the Scripture that says, crucify the flesh. But there is also an opposite danger, a danger of being too naturalistic, a danger of when we come to areas that say spiritual forces of evil are at work in our world, to almost discredit God and roll our eyes. Like we need to be biblical when we talk about Satan and demonic forces because the Bible talks about Satan and demonic forces. And we, we live in a day, we live in a day that assumes like demonic activity only happens if someone's head is spinning around or if they're puking out like pea soup or they're actually crawling up a wall. And let me, let me, let me say, if someone's head is spinning around and they're crawling up a wall, let's assume there is demonic activity. But let's look at what the scriptures say and assume that there is far more demonic activity around us than we ever dare to believe. Let's look at what the scriptures and let the scriptures 
inform us. Because the scriptures talk about this kind of spiritual warfare, something happening that we don't normally see. It talks about in a much more expansive and comprehensive way than we usually talk about it. And before you, if you, roll your eyes or say, man, that's crazy or that's like hyper spiritual. Like, I just, I want you to consider Ephesians as a whole. Like, consider what we've been doing. Like, verses, chapters 1 through 3 are explaining the gospel in our lives in very articulate ways, in in almost poetic ways of how the gospel changes us. And then we get to chapters 4 through 6, and it says how we can live for Jesus because of Jesus. So chapters 1 through 3, it says, how can we have Jesus because of Jesus? It's talking about the gospel. The chapters 4 through 6 is now we can live for Jesus because of Jesus. And then think about how practical it's been. Like how practical. Like Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. It says that we change in community as we confront one another, as we speak the truth in love. And we spend a lot of time on like, hey, you can just be truthful and not loving, or you can just be all loving and never tell the truth in which you're not loving. How practical is that? Or, you know, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, it says, you want to know how to change? Learn Jesus. Look at Jesus. Not just as an example, look at the face of God that we've gotten to see. What is he like? What did he do? How did he receive broken people who mess up? Or it goes on and starting in verse 25 through the first of chapter 5, and it gives this practical pattern to change. A practical pattern to change deeply addictive sin patterns. It matter of fact, if you remember, it tells us, hey, listen, like if you're doing something, stop, but don't just stop, start something else. And so it's, it says, if you were stealing with your hands, now work with your hands. And then it gives motivation so that you might have something to give. A pretty comprehensive way of how to change. And then it gets even better. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 21, it gets in, it says, you want to know how to defeat sin? Focus on joy. Focus on joy. And then it gets really practical. And it says the gospel wants to change your relationships. And it steps in. It talks about a husband and wife relationship. And then it talks about family dynamics and a family relationship. And then it talks about working relationships. And so it's been shaping. It started with something supernatural. Jesus is above all things. Everything is under his feet. It got incredibly practical. And now it's going supernatural again. And is it reasonable Is it reasonable to say, hey, I'll listen to what you have to say about my relationships or change, but whoa, 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 I don't know if I can trust you about those kind of things. If we trust it in seeing things, it is unreasonable for us not to trust it in unseen things. Paul stops to say, we've talked about so many things that are so practical, but you need to know that there is a battle that is waging all around us. And because of Jesus, we actually have authority in Jesus for Jesus' purposes and because of Jesus. Ephesians 6, it tells us that there are dark 
forces, that scheme behind the flesh and blood that we see, we are going to focus on just really the first verses, verses 10 through 13. And we're going to look at the enemy. What do we face? What is spiritual warfare like? How does it battle against us? And then next week, we're going to unpack what does it look like to fight? And so my focus today is to explain our enemy and his schemes. The primary we fight demonic attack is by seeing first his predictable schemes, preaching the truth to the lies. And so when we look at this, we're going to look at two main points. First, we're going to identify our enemy, and it uses a specific title, the devil. And then we're going to look at What does our fight look like? Our enemy and then our fight. And our fight is a spiritual fight. And it has so many descriptions that describe what I think if you slow down, you'll say, I actually feel almost every day. And so first, like, let's just get started. Our enemy. Like we could say it like this. This is going to tell us the devil and his spiritual forces of evil are an enemy against God and against us. And so in verses 10 through 12, this this starts to describe it. If we just gave a definition, we would say, you know, who is the devil? The devil and the demons are fallen angels who are supreme. They are the supreme enemy of God and of mankind because we are created in the image of God. So look at the text. In, In verse 10, it says, finally... After we talked about all the practicalities of how the gospel shapes life, that we should see it differently. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Like right there, we see the devil named as our enemy. And if you jump down to to verse 12, it goes on and we see description of a lot of spiritual forces of evil where it says against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible does not shine, shy, not shine, it might shine. The Bible does not shy away from describing forces of evil that exist in the heavenly plane that is diabolically against the purposes of God. They're named right here. You know, right, right. If we look at the word, the, the devil, it, it comes from a word diabolos, which actually diabolos, which is used 35 times in the New Testament. And it's always accompanied with the, a direct article, which means it's less of a name and more of a title. It's actually the, the noun form of a verb, diabolos, which means to throw accusations, lies, and slander. And so it's describing what this spiritual attack is like. It's describing what Satan or the devil is like. He's someone who slanders against God's people, throwing lies and accusations. The devil is a false witness, a malicious accuser. And so in the same way that you would look at someone running, you would say, they're a runner. Or you would look at someone if they were boxing and you would say they're a boxer. Or if someone was cutting jokes and they were kidding around, you would say they're a kidder. It is, the, it is a verbal, a noun form of a verbal phrase or a verbal word that describes what they are like. What is the enemy of God like? He's a liar. He throws accusations. He throws temptations. He accuses the brethren. 
That's the language we get in Revelation 20. But we see him throughout the whole scriptures. In Genesis 3, and we spent time there, but in Genesis 3, we see his first lie and accusation. When he slithers up as a snake and he looks at Adam and Eve and he starts to lie to him, he starts to say things like, did God actually say you can't eat any fruit in the garden? Which they actually, man, it informs so much. Like it's one to say, like plant this seed, this lie in our hearts. Is God even reasonable? Is he even for us? And then he continues to lie. You surely won't die. You know, if you look at the text as a whole, it's like Satan comes around and he says, listen, I've been watching you and I've been watching your interactions with God and he wants to hold you down. I don't think you can trust him. And that lying, slanderous accusation, it lodged itself in the heart of Adam and Eve and it grew. Satan is a liar. And then we get to the end of the scriptures. We get to Revelation 20, and it's no longer a snake, but now Satan is a dragon. Like someone has been feeding him. He keeps getting bigger, but it goes to describe actually all of history in Revelation 20 of a spiritual perspective that we couldn't see. It tells us that that Satan uh, or the devil rose up against God and God threw him and the demons in league with him to the earth that he made himself the prince of this world, deceiving humanity. And then he tried to destroy Jesus at his birth by using the iron machine of the Roman Empire, and he failed. And now he is at war with us, those who trust and believe in the gospel, who are now, how the Bible is going to describe, descendants of Jesus. Like if you read Revelation 20, you see how it unpacks a spiritual history of war for us. You know, when you get down to verse 10 of Revelation 20, it says that Satan or the devil, it describes him as the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night. The devil is an enemy of God who throws slander and accusation and lies toward humanity because he hates the image of God that is in us and he hates God and he throws him at us day and night, constantly. We have an enemy and it's called the devil and he throws lies, slander and accusation against those who are created in the image of God. The first thing that we see, we have a spiritual enemy. The second that we see here is it goes on to describe the battle. It describes it as a spiritual battle, and it actually gives a whole lot more description than maybe we pick up on the first read. And so this does not mean, like what I want to make sure we know, it doesn't mean that there's not physical battles that need to be fought also. It doesn't mean we dismiss physical things that are wrong and just focus on spiritual things. It means that it is far more encompassing than what we see. And this is leading us to have a spiritual vantage point that we might, what we'll get to next week, that we might pray at all times. So the first thing, what, what did we see in this spiritual fight? In verse 12, the first thing that we see about this spiritual warfare is it is close and personal. It is close and personal. Look at verse 12. 
Verse 12 says, for we do not wrestle. Wrestle or, or, or wrestle, depending on where you're from, but wrestle. We don't wrestle. Wrestle is, 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 is close. It's exhausting. Like if you look at that picture, like it's, if you know anything about wrestling, you're paired up with someone of equal size and equal weight. And then you're looking for opportunities <clears throat> as you struggle against one another, vying for leverage to take the other person down. You don't struggle from a distance. It is up close. It is personal. It's exhausting. You know, I, when I was wrestling, I remember going from the football field, going from the football bench. I remember going from the football bench to the wrestling room thinking I was in pretty good shape. And maybe for all purposes I was, but not for wrestling purposes. I remember what my coach would do, turn up the heat, and then he would just pair us up after some warm-ups and some stretching and some push-ups and some running. He would pair us up and he would start the timer for two minutes and we would wrestle for two minutes, rest for 30 seconds, wrestle for two minutes, rest for 30 seconds, and the process continued until people were throwing up everywhere or until like you're just hanging on top of one another and it looks like some sort of lame middle school dance. You have no strength. That's the picture for we don't just wrestle. It's close. To, to stay with the war analogy, this is when the bombs have already dropped. This is when the guns have fired all the bullets. And the only thing left is bare hands. This is, this is the picture that you see in the movie Saving Private Ryan. At the end of the movie, we're in that war-torn building, and they fired all the weapons, and after all the bullets have been fired, the knives come out. And it is far slower and far more personal than we dare to even think. This says spiritual warfare is close and personal. You know, I mean, even like if you've seen that movie... You see it unfold before and there's that one guy who's in the corner and he's just scared to death and he's watching his buddy get killed and he does nothing. And you blow up. You're like, man, what is wrong with that guy? I hate that guy. I mean, what? How, how do you know what you would do? But that's the picture. Like, I fear that in a similar way... We often do nothing as we witness the close and personal attacks of spiritual evil in the rooms that we occupy. It says that this kind of warfare is close and personal, for we wrestle. It goes on, and it's going to describe spiritual warfare as organized. Look at verse 12. It goes on, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. Like, look at all that description. Why doesn't it just say, for we don't just wrestle against demonic activity. It goes into a lot of descriptions. And I think it goes into a lot of descriptions because Paul wants you to know that it is an organized attack against you. Organized. Like rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. It sounds like different levels of a coordinated army. And why is that important to point out? 
It's important to point out because if it's coordinated, it means like the daily attacks, the small skirmishes of your life, they might be far more important than you ever know. They might be setting you up for like the checkmate moment where you really blow your life up. Like the the small moments that you struggle to tell the truth, but they're small white lies might be conditioning you to tell a lie when you really need to tell the truth. Or, Or the opposite would be true. Like all the small moments that you force yourself, you go against the temptation and you tell the truth might be preparing you to tell the truth when it's really important. If it's coordinated, there's a scheme behind it and the daily scrimmages of your life, they actually matter. See, spiritual warfare, it's close and personal. It's organized. You know, when this organization really comes out in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters where it kind of describes like cells of demons kind of attached and they communicate with one another and they, you know, they advise people of how to trip up their patients. That's what, that's what they're called. That's what we're called. And it might just be this. It might just be the fact that Satan has taken good, concise notes and he knows what tripped up your dad's dad's dad. And he's pretty sure to work on you too. It's organized. But it's also masked. Look at that. Look at verse 12. It goes on. Where it says at the beginning, it says, For we do not wrestle. And then it says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And then it has, But. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, and then it describes what we're actually wrestling. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't ever wrestle flesh and blood also. It means we don't just wrestle flesh and blood. There is something much larger behind what we can't see, and it's important. And so we don't just wrestle flesh and blood, but behind flesh and blood are demonic forces. This does not mean that evil does not come through human policies or flesh or people or institutions, but that it originates from a spiritual battle that is usually unseen. Listen to how one of my commentaries described this. It says, these powers of evil are personal, demonic intelligence. To reject the identification of the powers with human traditions and socio-political structures is not to deny that these supernatural intelligence work through such agencies. After all, the New Testament speaks of the whole world lying under the power of the evil one. Satan and his host exist for the purpose of bringing their evil and destructive influence to bear on the world and humanity at every level. As we've witnessed so much demonstration of injustice and racism, and we've asked as the church, like, man, what do I do with that? Like, what is my point of view. Like, what do I do with that? Like, we need to act and we need to see and we need to learn. We also need to pray. Like, and that gets criticized so many times where it's like, oh, don't just pray, Christians, do something. But this says, like, if we know that, like a John 10, 10, that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, anytime you make the human body or any human body less valuable, whether that's through you know, an inconvenient pregnancy that ends in abortion, or whether that's through a group of people who just don't seem to measure up, or whether they're not really worth my time, 
How could that not be a part of a John 10.10 scheme? Behind policies that are wrong, behind racism and injustice, this Ephesians 6, Paul instructs us that there is a spiritual battle that is at play. For we don't just wrestle flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. See, it says it's close and personal. Have you ever felt that? Have you felt the oppressiveness of accusations or slander that just seems to come? It just seems to wake up with you in the morning and it puts you to bed at night. Is an organized attack. The thing that, that haunts you the most seems to just get brought up over and over in the most shameful and condemning way. It's masked. There's a lot more going behind what we see. And then finally, some really good news. This text also tells us that it's subjugated. It's limited. If you look at verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God. And then it says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You are able to stand. And so in the same wrestling analogy, what has happened is, you know, Satan walked up with a heavyweight to put it in the ring. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, 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 not a heavyweight. That's not the right weight class. And it sized it down. So it's comparable. You can stand. First Corinthians 10, 13, it says it in a different way. It says it like this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Other translations say, stand beneath it. Like these are promises that even though these are dark forces and they're vast forces and they are set against you, that they are subjugated under Jesus because of what we've already read in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, it says that Jesus, everything has been placed under his feet. He has authority and he has sized it down so that you can stand or so that you can escape. And yet we, we have so many excuses. Like we have so many excuses. And I'm just saying, I don't know if those excuses are going to work when we see Jesus face to face. Like if it's true that he has sized it down and he has promised that it's not something that's odd to everyone. It's actually common to man. It has common denominations that everyone deals with and that you can actually bear it. He sized it down so that you can stand up beneath it or you can escape. I don't know if our excuses that we tell ourselves and we tell others... I just don't think we're going to be able to say it to Jesus. I, I, I don't think, I don't think you'll be able to say, Jesus, you just don't understand. Or I, I don't think your excuse of, but you don't know what they did or, or what they said. I don't know if that's going to carry the weight that you think it does if Jesus sized it down. Or when you're face to face with Jesus, you might find out that the past sufferings that you hate, that Jesus hates, 
you might find out that you made an alliance with those past sufferings to escape all the movements that God might ask you to do with you just don't understand. It's subjugated. See, spiritual forces against you have been subjugated. The reality, it, that reality magnifies the power and goodness of God, but it also exposes our laziness or our cowardice or our just idleness in this battle. It's the same feel of that room in Saving Private Ryan when the friend stood by and watched his friend be murdered evil in the room, it's closer than we imagine. It's organized against us. It's masked. But it's also subjugated for us. And then the last description that we're going to unpack on this is that spiritual warfare, spiritual forces scheme. Look at verse 11. We see this word that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That says that Satan schemes against you. Spiritual warfare is a calculated and well-informed siege against your life, identity, and your soul. It usually comes in the form of accusation and temptation. You've heard me throwing these words around, but I want to unpack these two words because it's actually a pretty predictable scheme against us that the devil throws constantly. And it usually can fall into one of two categories, accusation or temptation. And so let's start first with accusation. Accusation is thinking too little of yourself and too much of God's righteousness. And so you can think like it's forgetting about God's grace and exaggerating God's righteousness while being fixated on your failures. Satan loves to hurl accusation to lead you to despair. The idea that you're too terrible to actually be loved by God. And so in an old book by Thomas Brooks, uh, it's called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. What happened with Thomas Brooks was he, he looked out at his congregation, he was a pastor, and he says, why are my people, why do they have so much melancholy, which is an old word for depression. He looked at his people and said, why are they so depressed? And so what he realized was they were listening to spiritual voices in their mind. They were listening to themselves way too much, and they weren't talking to themselves near enough. And so what he did was he wrote a book coming up with all these common lies that we hear, and they're set up in accusations and temptations. And so I just want to give you two in the accusation category. I had four, but I've been preaching way too long, and I'm sorry. And so I have two for you. And so I think a common one is accusation... Excuse me, I'm okay. I'm so excited. Accusation of past sins. This is a constant whispering that reminds you of what you have done or what has been done to you. It whispers, God couldn't love or forgive someone like you. Someone who did that. Someone who had that done to them. God couldn't love that kind of person. It just keeps bringing up past failures or past moments of failing. 
And in that moment, if you're facing malicious, slanderous attacks of remembering what you did or what was done to you, you must fight that by meditating on Jesus' complete work on the cross. You need to remember that Jesus said, it is finished. It is atoned for. It is all paid for. You, you need to meditate on things like Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14, where it says, But when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, there's no more sacrifices to happen. One sacrifice, one single. He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because it was done. Waiting for the time that until his enemies would be made footstools for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, your sins are atoned for. God's grace is more than enough to cover the sin debt that you have. And it is paid in full. It's not a mortgage payment that you might not be able to make the next payment, or you might have insufficient funds, or you might be late. It is paid in full by Jesus. A common accusation is a constant reminder of, but you don't know how I failed. Another constant accusation is the accusation of present conflict in your life. A constant whispering that suggests that the present conflict or struggle either in your life or in your being, in your soul, would never exist for someone who is actually a Christian. Like in that moment, like you need to meditate on what the scriptures say about the life of a believer. The scriptures don't tell you that you will get to a place where you no longer wage or war against sin in your life. It doesn't tell you that you're going to arrive at a certain place where temptation doesn't work against you anymore. It doesn't tell us that. You know, you need to meditate on like a Romans 7 verse 15. Where it says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I do, but I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. What if I do what I do not want? It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Like just all of that to say Paul was a little conflicted with a struggle inside of him. And, and like this, this is Paul. This is Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Apostle Paul. And I just submit that if Paul said there is a present struggle inside of me that I wish was gone, like, I keep struggling. I want to submit that if he says that, it might happen in your life too. But yet, so many of us wake up with the accusation of, man, you're such a mess. Surely someone has been a Christian as long as you have. Surely they would be through it. Maybe you're not. And it goes further. Could God love a mess like me? Or, or, or could God's people ever forgive and accept a mess like me? Like what we see is accusation. And then there's promises like a Philippians 1, 6. It just tells us, and I am sure of this. This is Paul too. After all the struggle of Romans 7, he says, I am sure of this, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You 
The Bible has not promised, Jesus has not promised that you will not have to fight your flesh. It says you will. But it's also promised that when it's all said and done, it will be completed. Jesus won't give up. Satan uses accusation. And we only make time for two. But the demonic voice of accusation, I just fear it is so intertwined in our personhood that over time we don't even notice it how much it controls. You know, I think the picture is like, it's like living next to the waterfall for so long that after a while you can't even distinguish the sounds of the roaring rapids against the other sounds of the environment. It just seems like it's you. But this says it's not just flesh and blood. But there's an enemy, the devil, who loves to hurl accusations at the brethren. First category, Satan's schemes. He loves to accuse. Second category of Satan's schemes, temptation. You know, temptation, we could describe it like this, is thinking too much of yourself and too little of God's righteousness. It, it is forgetting about God's righteousness and exaggerating God's grace to a place where he's not even angry about sin anymore. I mean, we simply start to think, man, it's God's job to forgive, and surely God is good at his job. We don't see the cost of forgiveness. And so two common lies about temptation. First, Temptation loves to minimize sin. And so we see the struggle in like in Matthew 7. So Jesus was teaching and the struggle is, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so what it means is like we become keenly aware of the sin or the failings in others, but kind of blind or give a lot of grace to the sin and the failings in us. And the imagery is really supposed to be funny. Like you see a speck in someone's eye when you have a two by four in your own. And so like it starts off, but then it goes on. It says, verse four, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck of your brother's eye. And so this is saying like, you need to think, you need to stop thinking that the speck in your brother's eye is bad or worse and start focusing on your sin because it's the only sin you really have personal access to fight. And so it's pointing us to look more in. And there's just like this defense attorney that stands up and says things like, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get married one day, so does the time actually matter? It starts to defend, is this sin really that big of a deal? And if this is you, like you need to meditate on the consequence and trajectory of sin. Where could this lead me or my relationships? Or what, what kind of mark might this put on my soul for eternity? Like there is a temptation to minimize sin. There is also a temptation to presume upon the future forgiveness of God. This is the persuading voice that says you can always ask for forgiveness later. Once again, it says the same kind of thing. Like It's God's job to forgive. Surely he'll be good at his job. And if that's 
a temptation that you fall in, you need to meditate on the cost of forgiveness and the precious gift of repentance. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then it says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And then look at all this death language. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead, He might be, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All that death language reminds us that our forgiveness was purchased by the death of God. Your forgiveness came at a costly nature of God's horrific death. Like looking at the cross will sober us when we think, I'll just get forgiveness later. But it also puts us in big danger. Romans 2.4, it says that we shouldn't presume upon God's grace because it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. That warns us. If you're unwilling to repent for sin now, but you say, I'll do it for later, what, what makes you think you'll actually want to repent of sin later? If you're comfortable with now, but you feel a tension of like, man, this is wrong. This is something I need to turn away. But you keep presuming upon grace and keep pushing it down. What makes you think you'll get to a place where you actually want the forgiveness of God? It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. It's a costly gift that begins with God. If you have it now, run with it. Satan uses accusation and temptation. We need to find the scriptures and the promises that fight those lies. We need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. And I'm afraid that that voice has been so accustomed, we're so used to it, that we think it's just the inside voice of ourselves. What if it's not flesh and blood? What if, what if Paul is actually right? What if you have the authority to rebuke that and to speak back to it because you stand on, with Jesus and all of these things have been subjugated under his feet? What if that's true? Are you even engaging in the fight? Christian, I want you to know that you're not alone. In your battle against slanderous accusation or delectable temptation and being thrown at you all day, you are not alone. You have brothers and sisters in the room. And I don't want to stand idly by to watch your slaughter, to watch Satan's seams murder you, to drag you into deeper darkness. I want to fight. And this tells us how to fight. And next week, we're going to look so much more at how do we fight. But the first is we combat accusation and temptation. And we have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that preaches. So first, the life. 
Right after Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness after he fasted for 40 days. And the devil came and accused him and tempted him. And every time he answered back with, it is written. It is written. It is written. Every time he answered back with scripture. And so we see in the life of Jesus that the promises of the scripture are sure. They can lead us through temptation and accusation. We have the life of Jesus. He entered into temptation and he bore it. He knows what it's like and he can walk us through. But we also have the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus preaches the availability for us to have life. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus entered death to make life an actual option for you. The death of Jesus tells us that you don't have an ambivalent God who doesn't care about pain and suffering. You have a God who entered into suffering and death to make a way for life. And then finally, you have the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that victory is sure to come. All the disciples ran when Jesus was crucified. They all abandoned him because they looked at the events of their life and they said, there's no way, there's no way God could use this for good. It didn't look promising. It didn't look like there was any light or any plan or any victory to come. And yet it was the very plan of God to bring about salvation for mankind. That if we look to the life death and resurrection of Jesus. And we just say, I want that. I trust that. That is a guiding life for me. I will trust Jesus above myself. It says that we are saved. We are now descendants of the King. We are now brothers and sisters to Jesus himself. We're in the family of God. We have a place in the promised land. If that was true of the dark moment that God died, and the resurrection power turned the cross that would have been a horrific gesture of death and cruelty, turned into a symbol of hope and life. Does that not give you hope? Does that not give you hope where you already see darkness? See, a part of spiritual battles, we learn to preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to our circumstances and to our hearts. Pray with me. Jesus, we need help. Lord, we have spiritual forces of evil. And Lord, they're in the room. And they are bent on killing, stealing, and destroying. They are bent upon our destruction. But Lord, you have given hope. You have given hope because it is subjugated under you. And you've promised that we can flee. We can escape. And you've promised that we can bear. We can stand up beneath it. But Lord, make us brothers and sisters. Don't let us just stand idly by and watch the horrific mess of our brother and sister's lives because we're afraid to get in. Lord, enter us into darkness for one another with the hope and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City, I'll see you in two weeks.